Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Four years ago, Bernie Sanders won more primary votes from Americans under 30 than Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump combined. He also won big in New Hampshire, which votes next week. Could youthful enthusiasm propel a 78-year-old socialist to the nomination and even beyond? With 269 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. Hello, I'm John Prado, and this is a new podcast from The Economist about the 2020 elections and the road to power in America. I'm The Economist's US editor, and every week from now until Election Day in November, we'll take one theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, socialism in America. The contrast is devastating. As President Trump basked in acquittal by the Senate, the Iowa caucuses became a fiasco. It's even less clear who might lead the moderate wing of the Democratic Party than it was a week ago. But this weekend, activists trudging around New Hampshire in support of Bernie Sanders do have reasons to be cheerful. His grip on the radical wing of the party is strengthening. It's the best chance in decades for the American left to defy the rules of political gravity and have a candidate challenge for the White House. Could America choose a socialist president? Another person who's done his fair share of trudging around New Hampshire this week is The Economist's Washington correspondent, John Fasman. John Fasman, how are you? I'm very well, just back from three days in, uh, in the Granite State. And how is the food in New Hampshire? I am married to a New Englander, and I'm very partial to northern New England food. I think the best thing I ate was at the Red Arrow Diner, which is a necessary political stop there. I had the entire history of northern New England on a plate. You have the pork pie, which is a nod to the region's French-Canadian heritage. You had wonderful Maine potatoes, which taste better than Idaho potatoes, and some very austerely seasoned baked beans. It was good, hearty, unfussy food. Mm, Delicious. And the best part about this diner, the most New England part about this diner, is that with your meal, you get one very thin napkin, and if you reach to take another from the dispenser, you get the stink eye. Charlotte Howard, you seem to have spent most of the past week on a plane, so far as I can tell. How is the election looking from 35,000 feet? I was surrounded by infants on my flight home, so it felt kind of similar to the tenor of the election, I'd say. But I'm glad to be back. And you're on your way in from the airport. You're going to walk into the studio, and we're going to do this seamlessly. So thank you for that. Absolutely. So, John, the Iowa caucuses have helped clarify this split between moderate repairers and radicals within the Democratic Party. We'll devote a future episode of the podcast to the moderates. But this week, with New Hampshire just around the corner, we'll focus on Bernie Sanders. Do you think he got the boost out of Iowa that he was hoping for? You've seen him on the trail this week in New Hampshire. The results were pretty bunched up with Sanders and Buttigieg at the top, followed closely by Warren. But, of course, the results were late in coming, and they were released into this hellish news cycle with State of the Union and acquittal right there. So perhaps he didn't get quite the boost he otherwise would have gotten, but he's still far ahead in New Hampshire. 
I'll tell you what surprised me about his event. I saw him in Derry on Wednesday, just before he flew down for the impeachment vote. He sounded much more moderate than I expected. When he was asked a question about immigration, he went out of his way to say that he is not supportive of open borders, and he was arguing for comprehensive immigration reform. He mentioned DACA in passing, but he spent much more time talking about comprehensive immigration reform, which traditionally has meant a pathway to citizenship for those who are here and border enforcement. He also talked about how worried he was about the deficit. And so he sounded as though he was preparing to pivot toward a more sort of centrist position. He didn't sound like a firebrand at all. Bernie Sanders triangulates is not the headline you were expecting to hear out of New Hampshire. And John, his supporters are saying that Bernie Sanders pushing Elizabeth Warren into third place means that he'll have a lock on the party's sort of left wing for the remainder of the primary. I mean, of course, they would say that, wouldn't they? But how much truth is there to that, do you think? I'm not sure. I mean, he's polling pretty well in Nevada, and he's well ahead of her in South Carolina, but they're still both behind Biden. I think Warren's gambit now is to tack toward the center early. The ads that she released in Iowa in the days before the caucuses touted her support from former Trump voters and from Republicans who she knew in Oklahoma. So I think she is trying to position herself to be the compromise candidate. I think it's worth outlining briefly what some of their policies are. They're surprisingly detailed. Elizabeth Warren has by far the most detail of any candidate in the field. Bernie Sanders has some detail, but it is a bit less specific. But what he does have is a Medicare for all plan that would replace all of the private health insurance industry with a government-run program that would be free for Americans to use. He wants to cancel $1.6 trillion in student debt. He wants a jobs guarantee for everyone. Um, He wants to give workers 20% of the equity of large companies. So these are very, very far left policies by American standards. By by any, actually, they'd be pretty far left uh, in any Western European democracy as well. Um, Bernie does have very far left policies. But one of the things that his surrogates and supporters will say quietly is that, you know, when I press them on what happens when he proposes these policies to a divided Congress, they'll say, look, I'm not going to negotiate with myself. So the implication there is that these maximalist policies are a starting position rather than a fixed point, and that he will accept incremental progress rather than holding out for a perfect plan. And at the rally, when he started talking about comprehensive immigration reform, people applauded. And I think that shows one thing that political scientists say, which is that voters generally don't vote on policy, they vote on affinity. And I think Bernie, when he says comprehensive immigration reform, his supporters perhaps hear a path to citizenship for undocumented people, whereas if someone like Joe Biden were to say it, the progressive left might think deportations. So it just depends on the messenger much more than the message. Just as a counter to that, though, Fadman, I mean, if you look at his record in the Senate, it doesn't suggest that he's a guy who starts with one position and then uses that as uh, the beginning of a productive series of negotiations. Not one bill of which he was the uh, principal author has become law. It's a pretty remarkable uh, record for someone who clearly has been a standard bearer for an ideology, but he hasn't been effective in making that ideology become law that impacts people. That's right. He did vote for the Affordable Care Act, though, and he voted for George Bush's prescription drug bills. So those are those are the two things that his supporters point to when they well, say, you know, he absolutely has supported other people's bills. Yeah. But when they when it comes to time for his own ideas, he hasn't been able to advance his own agenda. John, while we're waiting for Charlotte to get out of her cab and run up the stairs and into the studio, let's talk a bit about where Bernie Sanders' appeal comes from. What can you tell us about that? Well, it comes overwhelmingly from young people. And I talked to one young Sanders supporter named Pat Tamino 
at length a couple of weeks ago. He was very eloquent about why he supported Sanders over Warren or anyone else. We are young folks, but we've seen enough to understand that there's a continuity of Democratic leaders from Clinton, even through Obama, though he represented a path-breaking new thing through Hillary Clinton, a failed candidate, and through the candidates this time. Bernie Sanders represents someone who actually wants to stand side by side with workers in this country, who wants to really fight for Medicare for all, programs that will mean a lot to people in their pocketbooks, like a living wage and forgiving student loan debt and making public colleges and universities debt-free for everyone, too. We're tired with tinkering solutions, incremental half-measures, market-based compromises with Republicans. We want to see what we can get if we start from a position of strength. Bernie Sanders represents a really new chance. And if you represent something new, then you get to have the aura of youth, no matter how old you are. That was a good answer from Pat, and it crystallized one of the oddities of this election, which is that the oldest candidate is drawing the greatest amount of support from young voters, while the youngest candidate is drawing tremendous support from older voters. It's an odd paradox. John, you had a nice line in the briefing you wrote this week that Bernie Sanders moved around the stage with the energy of a man half his age, which would still make him older than Pete Buttigieg. That's right. Exactly right. (laughs) I don't know how these 70-year-olds have the energy to do this. I'm about to be 45, and I just want to lie down all the time. (laughs) The door has opened, and here is Charlotte Howard. (laughs) Hi, Charlotte. Cue entrance music. Where's the band? Charlotte, you've now made it into the studio. Congratulations. Um, Polls suggest that about half of Americans aged between 18 and 29 now have a positive view of socialism. What do you think is going on there? Well, I think that Bernie's a really charismatic guy, and he explains his ideas with a huge amount of conviction, and it resonates with people. I also think that You know, there's a lot in the polling that shows how much voters care about authenticity. And when you see Bernie, he is what he is. He's an he's a guy who has really big ideas and doesn't seem to own a hairbrush. And that's it. And you kind of get him and he's able to uh, connect with voters on this visceral level. And then he has these big ideas that intuitively seem like they will be a good thing. So, you know, everybody wants healthcare. We like the idea of more people going to college. And so there's a sort of a simplicity in his messaging and a passion that I think has helped drive his support among young people. I think there may also be a push factor in that when politicians have suggested that we would like to reduce the number of uninsured and the right has said that's socialism or as they said, we don't want to be crushed under student debt or we don't want people to be homeless and the right has said that's socialism, then perhaps young people have said, okay, I guess if that's socialism, I'm a socialist. Right. right? And then you also had Obama, the disillusionment after yes. Obama, yeah. where uh, he, of course, was such an inspiring candidate. And then I think people, a lot of people, despite the ACA, which did have that provision around, you know, continuing coverage for young people up to age 26, which was something that a lot of people did feel the benefits of. You know, there were other parts of the agenda that um, didn't feel as tangible. And he, of course, was stymied in Congress. So I think that that also fed into a hunger for something a bit more uh, dramatic. Yeah. And it's striking to hear the extent to which Bernie supporters will overtly say that they see his candidacy as fulfilling the unfulfilled promise of, of the Obama administration. There's another thing going on, I think, which is if you're an American age 29 or under, the memory of socialism as it actually existed in Eastern Europe or in Russia in the more extreme version has faded entirely. You know, that didn't exist during your sort of political lifetime. And so it's a lot easier to be in favor of an idea like socialism when it doesn't come with all the baggage that it comes with if you're perhaps 40 or older. 
I mean, Alexandre Ocasio-Cortez, who's one of the standard bearers, the most prominent among the socialist parts of the Democratic Party, was four weeks old when the Berlin Wall fell. That's extraordinary. That makes me feel ancient. <laughs> you are ancient. I know. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Thank you, guys. We will pause the discussion there for a moment. If you've listened to this podcast before, you'll have realized that I enjoy going down the rabbit holes of American history when I'm trying to understand and explain what's currently going on in American politics. This week, I've been tracing the origins of the idea that the U.S. is no place for socialism. If you are the average American who watches television 40 hours a week, you have probably heard of such important people as Kojak and Wonder Woman. Before he entered politics in Vermont, Bernie Sanders made documentaries. The didactic tone of 1970s public television seems to have rather suited him. dozens of different kinds of underarm spray deodorants. Sanders liked to draw attention to worthy causes. Strangely enough, however, nobody has told you about Gene Debs. And his political hero, Eugene Debs. One of the most important Americans of the 20th century. Debs was an Indiana railway worker. In 1894, he led a strike against Pullman, shutting down rail transport in the West for weeks. Debs went to prison for his trouble, but that didn't stop him running for president five times. The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. Bernie Sanders himself recorded Debs' speeches, transposing his hero to Brooklyn. The master class has had all to gain and nothing to lose, while the subject class has had nothing to gain and all to lose. For Debs, the victory of Republican William McKinley in the 1896 election was a turning point. Debs decided that the end of wage slavery, as he called it, would not come via mainstream politics. He said he was as much ashamed of having once been a Democrat as he was proud of going to jail. Mayor Bernard Sanders, independent, mayor of Burlington, why are you running for governor? Well, I'm running for governor because I think it's time to stop the tweedledee, tweedledum politics of the Democratic and Republican Party. Bernie Sanders has also built his political career taking on Democrats. He only joined the party when he launched his first presidential bid. Socialism, to me, is a philosophy. 1912 was the high watermark for the Socialist Party of America. Debs received nearly a million votes for president. He had also succeeded in shifting the political dial. The two big parties embraced the progressive agenda, women's suffrage, trust busting, the minimum wage. But in a pattern that would repeat, war put the socialist cause on hold. Debs's pacifism marginalized him and his ideas until the crash and the depression brought them back into the mainstream. In the working out of a great national program that seeks the primary good of the greater number, it is true that the toes of some people are being stepped on. Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal was probably the closest to socialism America ever came, with work programs, social security, and affordable housing. A new agency of local government, the Housing Authority of Jacksonville, meets with the mayor to receive the telegram from the United States Housing Authority granting a loan for their low-rent housing project. But again, war abroad thwarted socialist dreams, this time definitively. Once defeating communism became America's defining mission, universal healthcare and workers' rights were tainted by association with the Soviet enemy. Hey, this your house? Yeah. Here. Two families gonna live here. You're being transferred. See, it's all right What do you here. mean? They began to I'm resemble the first steps job. in the transformation of the US into a totalitarian nightmare. You can't do this to me! government can't control everything 
without controlling me, what I can say and what I can't say. And I mean police control that tells me where I'll work, where I'll live, and all the rest of it. We've worked so hard. Now we've lost our house, our car. I didn't even get a chance to finish the the year 1950 was pivotal. In response to Harry Truman's shock win, Republicans tried a new slogan for the midterms, Liberty versus Socialism. They dropped it after complaints they were mischaracterizing Truman. But the seed was sown. Ladies and gentlemen, they shouldn't be called that administration Democrat Party. To call them Democrats is an insult to the millions of loyal American Democrats. That same year, Senator Eugene McCarthy added the Democratic Party to the list of institutions he believed to have been infiltrated by communists. They shouldn't be called Democrats. They should be referred to properly as the Commie-Crap Party. The last time the Socialist Party of America ran a candidate for the presidency was 1956. Darlington Hoops won fewer than 6,000 votes. By 1960, John Kennedy had turned staunch anti-communism into a centerpiece of the Democratic platform. Most of us in Hollywood are very well aware of the concept or the misconception that many people, our fellow citizens, have about people in show business. But a movie actor named Ronald Reagan was still warning of the subtler ways America could start down the slippery slope. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. To those watching at home tonight, I want you to know we will never let socialism destroy American health care. The Cold War is long over, but Republicans are still betting that socialism is political kryptonite. Many people in Burlington are still in a state of shock following that city's most stunning political upset in memory last month. Bernard Sanders, one of the founders of the Liberty Union Party and a consistent loser in previous quests for elective office, was now the big winner. Senator Sanders, meanwhile, thinks he can continue to upend the political establishment with his tousled charm and his brand of democratic socialism. Tonight, our Vermont Report guest is Burlington Mayor Gordon... Uh, uh, <laughs> is that John Charlotte, do you think socialism as a label still has the same power as it has to, you know, the power to repel in American politics as it has had in the past? Or do you think that's faded? I mean, it looks like Democrats are running a real-time experiment on exactly that question that could result in their losing an election. So we'll see. I mean, it is interesting because um, since the 30s, I remember when I was looking, I, I did a package on Warren's policies last year. And in the 30s, when FDR was running for re-election, he said of the big companies that were lining up to oppose him, you know, they are unanimous in their hate for me and I welcome their hatred. And there is a degree to which the more it's perceived that big business hates Sanders, the more he can bring that up in his rallies. I mean, that's something – it's okay to have enemies if your enemies are people who the electorate also despises. So the question is whether some of that old guard – feels that the label of socialism is a threat. But more specifically, honestly, it's about whether people really want 
their means of getting healthcare to be overthrown. I mean, that's a that's a really big deal. And I was covering healthcare when Obamacare was trying to be implemented. And I remember going, it was really the beginning of the surge in populism with those town hall meetings around the country. And you had Glenn Beck rallying people up and the Tea Party getting started. And healthcare can really, really mobilize people on both sides of the aisle. So I think that is the one issue that Trump could really seize on if Bernie were to be the candidate. The FDR comparison is interesting because Sanders himself makes it on the trail a lot. And I think that leads a lot of Democrats to wonder, well, why doesn't he just call himself a progressive Democrat instead of a democratic socialist? This is Checks and Balance from Economist Radio. This week, we're asking whether Americans could vote for a socialist president. In a moment, we'll discuss how much President Trump might relish running against a socialist. But before that, a reminder... You can read all The Economist's election coverage, along with everything else the newspaper has to offer, by subscribing. There's an excellent Lexington column this week on the State of the Union, big package about the divided Democratic Party. Head to economist.com slash pod2020 to receive 12 issues for $12 or £12. That link again, economist.com slash pod2020. With us this week as a special guest is James Astill, The Economist's Washington bureau chief and Lexington columnist. James, how are you? Uh, very well, thank you, John. James, you were watching the State of the Union a couple of evenings ago. Do you think that socialism still has the power to repel that Donald Trump clearly thinks it does? You know, he had Venezuela's opposition leader there in Congress and called him out and said that you know socialism destroys countries. Is it as powerful as he, he thinks it is? Well, it certainly is as powerful as he thinks it is for for people who are minded to heed his words. And I I think the context in which this discussion is happening is different from the context of the past. That is to say that on the one hand, we can see that clearly socialism is a less off-putting or scary concept for a section of the electorate, younger people who have no memory of the Cold War in particular. But more broadly, partisan identity has become more important than ideological labelling. And therefore, what you have is a Democratic Party that is much more minded to vote for the Democrat, be he a socialist or a moderate or Elizabeth Warren's dog. And you have a Republican Party that is is much more liable to vote and to coalesce together to vote against the Democrat, no matter who their Republican champion is or who the Democratic champion is. And what Trump is doing is certainly drawing on a historic antipathy to socialism, but he's more mobilising his party against whoever the democratic challenger may be. When I was looking into the history of this, I was intrigued that socialists have been puzzled as to why socialism hasn't taken off in America for a really long time. And actually, it was a kind of an embarrassment among socialist theorists in the late 19th and sort of early 20th century. So if you go back to 1906, there was a book published then with the title, Why is there no socialism in the United States? And the so two answers that socialist theorists came up with were it had to do with race, and it had to do with the sort of abundance of consumer goods. And so I came across a couple of lovely things. There's a letter by Karl Marx in 1870 to a couple of friends in New York. And he says that the reason socialism hasn't taken off here is that you can't get a kind of working class solidarity together because it's forever being undermined by new groups of immigrants. And then I also came across a thing from Trotsky's diary. He lived in the East Bronx in 1917. And he was amazed by how his children 
just loved all the bits and pieces in his apartment, you know, the consumer goods, the electric lights, the gas cooker, the bath, the telephone, the fact that there was a, a lift with, you know, you pressed a button, an elevator, and it came up, a shoot for the garbage. And he basically says, you know, socialism's never going to take off in a place that has all this great stuff that you can buy, because my children are having far too much fun sort of playing with all these toys produced by America's amazing consumer economy. But I guess, James, what you're suggesting is that because of the strength of partisan ID now, all sorts of things that we used to think were kind of impossible suddenly become possible. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, who would have thought that the Republican Party would have folded behind a reality TV star with no firm ideological convictions of, of any kind and, of course, a very spotted moral record and a very dubious honesty the great blunderbuss in American politics is that partisan identity that you refer to. And I was watching uh, Bernie Sanders in New Hampshire the other day and thinking to myself, you know, he's been doing a bit better in the polls. Has his constituency of the Democratic coalition grown in some way? And I did think, based on my conversations with some of the people that have been listening to him after the rally, that that was possible because... They just didn't refer to his socialism, or in fact, they didn't really refer to his his policies, his ideas at all. They referred to his character. They clearly saw him as on the side, as being a perfectly legitimate democratic choice, and a choice that they might make in his favour because they liked his manner, they liked the way he spoke, they thought that he was honest. People are looking for a champion of the Democratic Party against the Republican Party. They're less concerned, I think about those ideological labels that were so important in the past. I can second James's reporting. I talked to a couple of people in the line outside Sanders' rally in New Hampshire yesterday who were Bloomberg supporters, but who had come up to see Sanders because one of them wanted to ask about his plans for people who work in the healthcare industry, as he was planning to do. They like the guy, you know, and I think you can't discount that. He is a, he, they praise his authenticity and, as James says, his, his character. I do think, though, when you think about him standing up against Trump. I mean, there's a limit to which his likability will sustain him in a general, in my view. And, you know, if you look at the Medicare for all polling, what is it, 38 percent? So, I mean, that's just not a great number. And so it's a real test is how much that charisma and that authenticity, which is so plain, uh, can sustain him going forward and just how much Republicans can eat into, if he were to be the nominee, how much how much they can eat into the meat of his proposals to help uh, defeat him. Yeah, another point of it, it, the Medicare for All thing reminded me that at the rally, he was very specific. He said Medicare for All with a four-year transition plan. So he has already started sort of, it, and that's essentially what Warren said. I think her transition was 10 years. But there is an awareness that people are scared by the idea that he's going to come into office and all of a sudden none of us are going to have health insurance. There's a nice line on this that it's one thing for Democrats to run against a Republican attack ad that says all Democrats are socialists, but it's another to present Republicans with a, an opponent who is literally the Democrat of their attack ads to give them a socialist uh, as their opponent. Also, even if you believe that the popularity of Medicare for all could rise in a general election, I guess it's possible. There are some things in there which definitely won't poll well and, and uh, you know, write their own attack ads. So the fracking ban is not going to go that well that down in Pennsylvania, um, which Democrats need to win. There's votes for prisoners. There's the pro-immigration stuff. So we're decriminalizing the border, health care for undocumented migrants, scrapping ICE, immigration and customs enforcement. That is 
a Republican attack ad sort of written right there, and it's straight from Bernie Sanders' policy proposals. Yeah, and however much he tries to explain it, those headlines are what they are. It could be that the more he tries to explain, you know, I'm going to abolish ICE, but we're still going to protect the border. I'm going to ban fracking, but everybody who worked in that industry is going to have five years of salary paid and job care. The more he tries to explain it, perhaps the less people believe him, the more he's essentially telling people to trust that a government that could not make a healthcare website work is going to pay everybody who worked in the fossil fuel industry for five years seamlessly. Charlotte, when Elizabeth Warren was having her bump in the polls last year, because she had such detailed policy plans on regulating Wall Street, for example, there are quite a lot of people who I talked to in New York who seemed to be kind of worried about her. But do you get the same sense of alarm about Bernie Sanders? Or do you think hitherto haven't taken seriously the prospect that A, he could be the nominee? And B, you know, as soon as you're the nominee, there is some non-trivial chance that you become the president? I think in the fall when Elizabeth, in the late summer when, when Warren was having her surge, I heard much more anxiety among business people I was interviewing about Warren. And their main question was, gosh, could she really be the nominee? And then B, if she were president but Republicans kept the Senate, how much could she really get done? And Bernie at that point seemed a bit more fringe. But since really 2016, you've seen Sanders move from the fringes right to the center of the Democratic Party debate. And the same questions that applied to Warren will apply to him, which is if there were a President Sanders, what could he actually get done? So how much would the business community actually fear a Sanders presidency? And the answer to that is, you know, a really sweeping overhaul to healthcare with a Republican Senate, that seems pretty hard to do. Easier to do would be lifting the minimum wage for federal workers. He could appoint different people to the National Relations Board, which could have an impact with tech and antitrust. And particularly with trade, he could do much more, even if he didn't control Congress. But some of these really sweeping legislative ideas that he has would be harder to enact. James, are people getting too carried away with the notion of Bernie Sanders as a possible Democratic nominee? I mean, yes, he did well in Iowa. He's expected to do well in New Hampshire. But after that, things become a lot tougher for him. You know, does he have a realistic path to or a likely path to the nomination? He's always had a feasible path to the nomination, uh, even when people weren't really talking about him. When Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden seem much likelier. He has a solid, very faithful 15, let's call it 20, between 15 and 20 percent of the Democratic coalition. And in a very fractured field, that could work for him. Biden, the long-standing frontrunner, is suddenly looking really fragile. Biden did terribly in Iowa. He may not do much better in New Hampshire. And if the sort of air goes out of his bubble, it's not clear who would take up the running in that sort of 50% of the Democratic coalition, which is moderate or conservative. In that circumstance, Bernie's sort of solid minority and perhaps growing minority of the liberal, very liberal um, minority of the Democratic coalition looks even more powerful. That's more or less the path that Donald Trump took the nomination in in 2016, that he retained the biggest and most committed faction in a deeply split field, and the establishment didn't really coalesce around Jeb Bush or John Kasich. The parallels between Sanders and Trump, as different as they are ideologically— in their relationship to the party and in the relationship to the electorate are really quite striking, that they're both factional candidates. They both have essentially borrowed a political party to fuel their own race. And they were both dismissed and even ignored by most of the establishment. And Trump 
won in 2016, Bernie could well blaze that same path this year. There is one important structural difference, though, in the way that the Democratic primary is set up. The Republican primary in 2016 had a lot of winner-takes-all states. And so Donald Trump was able to win all the delegates from some states while only picking up, say, 30, 35 percent of the vote. Democrats don't have those. They award their delegates more in proportion to the voting. So it's harder for somebody like Bernie Sanders to get way out ahead in the delegate count while only having you know, 30 percent of the vote in each primary. And that perhaps makes the dream of all political journalists, the contested convention in Milwaukee, uh, that bit likelier. That's absolutely right, John. But we should also add that the comparison with Donald Trump can also be overegged because Donald Trump at this point in the 2015-16 cycle was the front runner, considered to be a weak front runner, with about 35% of the vote in national polls. Bernie Sanders has a third less of that vote share than, than Donald Trump had at this point in the cycle back in the day. He's only at around 20%, not 30 plus percent as Donald Trump was. Fasman, do you think that even if Sanders doesn't become the nominee, though, that his impact on this primary will be seen in whoever does become the nominee, whether in their party platform, whether people have had to present ideas that are further to the left than if he hadn't been in this race at all? I think that's certainly true. And it's it, it's a legacy of 2016, too, that I think that the extent to which he surprised the party by his performance in 2016 pushed the entire party to the left. So I think he's already had, even without becoming the nominee, even if he is not the nominee, he will have had a profound impact on on American politics and on the Democratic Party itself. So socialism may not come to power in America, but it's possible that it could have quite a big influence on the Democratic Party. I think it already has. Bernie Sanders' brand of democratic socialism already has. We'll take a look at those moderates in the coming weeks. But for now, James in D.C., Charlotte and John in New York, thank you. Before you go, I know, Charlotte and John, you enjoy this. James, it'll be your first try. It's the Economist Archive Quiz. This week, we're going back to 1896. We referred already to the victory of uh, the Republican William McKinley that year. But who did he beat? Who was the Democratic candidate in 1896? Oh, wasn't it William Jennings Bryan? For full marks for you, John Fassman. Yes. The Economist leader on McKinley's victory um, expressed alarm at the gap between Election Day and McKinley's inauguration. Can you guess when Inauguration Day in 1897 was? What was, what was the date of McKinley's inauguration? Oh, God. I mean, could it have been – Was it, is January it not in 1st. January? No, it was late. It was the 4th of March. And The Economist at the time wrote an article worrying that because America was no longer full of Protestants who were used to you know, deferred gratification and waiting patiently for things, the, the strain of waiting for such a long time between the election and McKinley's inauguration would lead to a severe trial of the nerves. Hmm. <laughs> Big ball politics. <laughs> I'm convinced now that um, while you're reading Trotsky's – while John Prida is reading Trotsky's diary in his – in your spare time, Fasman is each week poring over his ninth grade history textbook so he can have the perfect answer to these quizzes. No, William Jennings Bryan came up in the in the briefing yesterday, which is why I was thinking about him. Hmm. Sure. <laughs> well, thank you, James, in D.C. Thank you. Thank you, John, in New York. My pleasure. And thank you, Charlotte, also in New York. And thank you for making the extra special effort getting off the plane and straight into the studio. I literally have been traveling for 26 hours. I sat on a butter packet in my seat in coach. It's on my ass, and I have a meeting in like half an hour. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. (laughs) 
Each week, I also write a checks and balance newsletter, which includes the pick of The Economist's election coverage. Sign up to that at economist.com slash checks and balance. And please don't forget to subscribe to Checks and Balance on your podcast app and give us a rating if you like what we're doing. That's all from us. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. <laughs>